0: My grandmother always said to me, if you're in a dangerous situation, two things, make them decide that you're not worth it. The second one, she used to say, try and have a poo, because they're not going to want to have sex with the girl that has a poo. So of course I'm sitting there going, trying to, and like nothing's coming out and going, oh. So I think, okay, well, that's not working. Having a poo is not going to work because I don't want to have one. So what do I do now? Yeah, tonight,
1: we will decide. What we should do about me and you I'm feeling lost Jumbled and tossed This old skin I don't fit in I will hope you plan To try and understand While I'm sputtering to sin
2: Hi I'm Megan McChesney and this is The Lip. The Lip is a podcast of unforgettable true stories, and today's story is from the wild and wonderful Amanda Betts. That was her you just heard at the top of this track. Amanda is known to a lot of people as the woman who co-founded Red Eleven Modelling Agency. She spent a huge chunk of her life in the ultra-privileged world of beautiful people. And then, one day, she just gave it all up to work with kids in the youth justice system and in prisons. In the process, she went from being a high-flying business owner to pretty much flying by the seat of her pants. And the question is, what on earth would make anyone give up everything they'd worked their whole lives for? The answer, it seems, lies not in the future, but in the past. This is the 10th episode of The Lip, and we're doing things slightly different this month. We're telling Amanda's story in a series of scenes that each captures a moment in her life, and together they explain how she got to where she is today. Just a quick warning: this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence, sexual abuse, and drug taking.
1: Something I could never do.
2: Scene one. Amanda's dad walked out on the family when she was little. She's now eight years old and her brother Jason is six. Their mother has started partying hard and a lot of people are coming in and out of the family's orbit. Also, just in case you're wondering, Basil Brush was a talking fox, a kids' TV character in the 60s and 70s.
0: I always remember the first attack or the first approach, I guess is the better word for it. It was really subtle. I was in the bath and he was bathing me and splashing water over me. And then when I got out, he ran his finger right across my body, right past my my chest. And he said, what's that mark there? And he was did it really super softly, which obviously made all my hair stand up on end. And I felt really ashamed, you know, at the fact that my body had sort of responded to something that didn't feel nice. Oh, was so creepy. It was skin-crawling stuff. Every time he started touching me after that, I'd get the same feeling. And then the real sort of no-doubt-about-it incident happened, which was just game-changing. My mother was in hospital suffering severe asthma attacks, and... You know, he said, come on, you know, put my brother to bed. And I felt really lucky because even though I was older, I had to go to bed the same time as my brother. And then I remember him putting me on his huge, you know, lazy boy chair. So he got down on his knees, removed my basil brush undies, and then told me what he was going to do to me. It was a really, really strange feeling, like, what is he going to do? And said, do you like that? And I was like, no, I don't like it. And he goes, well, what about if I do this? I was just trying to kind of zone out and trying to separate from what was actually happening. And then he got angry at me and grabbed my undies and put them on me. And I remember looking down and they were inside out. And I was really angry because they were basil brush undies. And, you know, they didn't look right. That basil brush wasn't on the outside because I just loved my little basil brush undies. And um, I then ended up sleeping that night with my brother and it was the most disgusting, disgusting feeling I've ever felt, you know, in in my life.
2: Scene two. Amanda is 10 and fast becoming the focus of her mother's rage.
0: The violence just got worse and worse and worse. It would start as a simple thing, like I'd miss a patch in, in the vacuuming. She'd call me, you know fat and revolting and gross and ugly and that boys won't like me or they might I might be able to attract boys but I won't be able to keep them once they know my personality you know really crazy stuff when I first got my first jug called beating oh my gosh it is such a v- violation of your body like it actually cuts through your being you know and it leaves these massive welts and it's like you're on fire it completely cracks you
2: Scene 3. Amanda is 11. Over the course of her childhood, she will be sexually abused by seven men. She describes an encounter with another visitor to the house.
0: We were watching TV. My brother was on the floor on his stomach watching TV and I was hugging him.
2: Him being the visitor.
0: And he just kind of kept on softly moving. So he just like kind of adjust himself and adjust himself and adjust himself until my head was starting to move down his torso. And then he just got my head and lowered my, my mouth onto him. And I remember going with it, thinking, oh, my brother was there. And I didn't want my brother to turn around and see what was going on. And I looked up at him and I remember feeling so much disappointment that another man was doing this to me. I remember approaching my brother and he goes, no, you're, you're lying, you're lying. You know, he's, he, he's, not, he's not doing that, he's not doing that. I said, I'm not telling you, I'm telling you, that's what he did. You know, and, and you have to be really careful. And then my brother came to me and said, I believe you. And I said, why? And he said, I, I was in the bath. And he came in and asked him apparently if he'd played with himself. After that, it's when my brother and I really connected and we realised that all we had was each other. You know, it's it changed our relationship. And in a funny little way, I'm extremely grateful for that because my brother became one of the greatest loves of my life. And that formed our connection because he believed me and I had him. And all of a sudden, I didn't have to carry this darkness on my own shoulders and in my own heart and in my own being, you know, on my own.
2: Scene four. It's 1980. Amanda is 12 years old and hunger is one of the only constants in her life.
0: We started really struggling, you know, so with, with the food. We'd have the bare basics and we'd have 2 wheat picks in the morning, two Vegemite sandwiches for lunch and just the basic dinner, you know, so we're starving. Now my mother used to wear silver, 15 big chunky sterling silver bracelets going up her arm and we were still starving. My, I remember my brother and I just going, this is not right, we're never full. The thing is, that made my brother and I start to steal, you know, we started stealing fruit off fruit trees, and we'd start stealing um, from dairies, you know, I'd steal biscuits all the time. We quite often put things down our pants, because we thought even if they did check us, they're not going to want to stick their hands down our pants. So we just became, you know, super, super fast. We, we learned how to become hustlers, you know? So, so we used to get up really, really ridiculously early in the morning so that we could get all the mandarins in winter, you know, and the Fijoas. Um, and we'd just steal, we ate grapefruits, we'd eat lemons, you know, we'd, we'd eat anything. I, and I also would steal people's clothes. We were also doing a paper run, and my mum would take the money for the paper run. We knew that there was a particular house that was a, a druggie house. It was big and flash and wonderful, you know? And we're like, wow, imagine living in that house. And we were delivering the papers one day, and I delivered the papers into the box, and I saw um, this cash, and I was like, oh my goodness, and I pulled out the cash, and there was 50 bucks in there. This was like, holy crap, there's 50 bucks, imagine how many biscuits and bags of bread we could buy with this. We felt like we could buy anything, and I did the whole finders, keepers thing. But then there was that kind of this word on the street that somebody had stolen from the drug dealers and that they were after the person that had stolen from the drug dealers. That really scared me.
2: Scene five. Amanda is still 12. The beatings from her mother have become markedly more violent and regular.
0: She'd go into these cruel rages and she would take out her whole life on us, you know, dad leaving, dad not helping financially, the domestic violence, the poverty, the fact she had to work so hard, you know, everything would come out and be taken out on us. She certainly tried, you know, to get to your soul. I was starting to get real tough at this stage, like really strong and stroppy, and I could take the pain, I could take the heat, I could take the hits, I could take the the torture, anything.
2: And then at the end of one school day...
0: I remember seeing this man, and he was just staring at me and just watching me as I was cleaning the classroom. And, of course, I put my broom down and ran around to the edge of the the, the school, and I looked at him... And I just I looked him in the eye and I studied him. You know his his green eyes. I'd never seen. I never. I kind of knew he had green eyes, but not really, because I'd only seen him in photos. And of course, most of them were black and white. So um, I had green eyes, and I could see my eyes, and I could see my hairline even, and I could see my brown hair and my height. Um, and I just said to him, "Is this who I really think it is? Is this? Are you my dad?" And we held each other so tight. You know, and I just, like, surrendered in his arms. And then we got in the car and his ex-wife was with him as well, and my brother. And it was a really strange feeling because my dad was trying to talk to me. He was trying to apologize. He was trying to, you know, say how sorry he was. He was trying to say he tried to see us. And I really felt like he was really trying, you know, so hard. And he had all of these gifts for us. It's like he was trying to make up for everything. And we said, we can't take them. We can't take those presents. Because if we take them, we're going to be so badly beaten. And I remember him being sort of devastated.
1: Your eyes tell me everything out loud. How you fell far from the angel's grace and
2: crashed down Scene six. Amanda is 15 now, and it's been three years since she saw her dad.
0: So it transpired that my dad knew he was dying, he had leukemia, he fought it for years. My brother and I were in the kitchen preparing the potatoes for dinner. And my mum came in and just said, look, I don't know how you're going to take this, but your father's dead even though we didn't know him, and even though he hadn't done anything for us. You know, I was devastated. I started crying. She goes, I don't know what you're crying for. He did nothing for you. You know, he left you when you were two and your brother was eight weeks old. He could have done something, but he didn't. You know, we had to kind of carry on as if it was no big deal. And inside, I'm dying. You know, like my father is dead. He's actually dead. We weren't allowed to go to his funeral and our names went on as gravestone.
2: Scene seven. Amanda is still 15 and she started having boyfriends although she's not allowed.
0: Mum's gone out and we weren't expecting her till quite a bit later so this, this boy's in my room and we're mucking around. We hear the door and I'm like oh my gosh we quickly race him out the front while she comes in the back she came in, and I was obviously flushed, and all like, holy moly, my heart's racing at 100 miles an hour. I'd just been passing this guy, mucking around with this guy, and I could tell she saw something. Eyes just went up like saucers, marched over to me, and I thought, what the heck has she seen? And she grabbed me by my ear and twisted it and started dragging me into the bathroom and then she pushed my face up against the mirror and of course I'm starting to cry, I'm going crazy, a snot's coming out of my nose I'm begging her and she smashes my face into the mirror and she starts you know, look at you slut whore, you know, you're a stupid bitch and da 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 the same stuff and then finally I get just a little bit of distance between me and the mirror and I see this dirty great heart shaped hickey on my neck just underneath my jawline. So I started begging and asking her, and I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And then she just told me to go into my room. And then I waited, and oh my gosh, I don't know how much time elapsed, but it felt like hours, it's like, how am I gonna get out of this? I'm too scared to run away, because I've been told that nobody will love me, that nobody will accept me, that nobody will take care of me, and I believe it. So I'm waiting for the punishment of the hickey. And she comes in and sure enough, she's got the jug called bent over and she goes, you know what to do, all right? And I get down on my knees and I bend over my bed and then she says, actually, get up. And I'm thinking, oh, and you know, when you hold onto a line of hope, you think, oh, this is something different. Something's changed. What is it gonna be? You know, maybe, maybe she'll get it this time. Maybe she, won't do this to me, you know, maybe we can talk about it. I get up and she goes, look at me. And I'm thinking, oh please don't, because all I could ever see was demons. Black, dark, hatred, resentment, fear, anger. And she's studying me, she's really studying me, studying my face, studying my eyes. And she goes, take it off. And I am kind of do this frown and I'm like, but mum, And she said, take it off, really slowly and quietly and calmly. So I took my pyjama top off. I've got my socks and my undies and my bra. And I'm really awkward and trying to cover my stomach. And she goes, take it all off. So I start taking my bra off. And I start lowering my underwear. And then she lets me stop at my socks. And she said, that'll do. And she said right you know what to do so I got down on my knees and off she went and she went to town on my body and my heart and my being and my mind freedom of choice is the song that came in my head I thought I'm just going to sing this verse over and over in my head and it's A victim of collision in the open sea, nobody ever said that life was free. Sank, swam, go down with the ship, use your freedom of choice. And so that was the freedom of choice song by Devo. And I just sang it and sang it and sang it over my head. I was like, freedom of choice is what you got. And I thought, you... You can do whatever you want. You can fuck with my mind. You can screw with my body. Everyone else has. You're no different. But you are not touching my spirit. That is mine. And it belongs to me. And I didn't make a sound. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of myself. I was tough. I cried. But that's because my body, the humanness of me, could not take the pain. And I was so... Sp- split and smashed and cracked and broken that I just just felt like I had nothing left to hold on to. You know, there was just nothing left to hold on to except for that song, that freedom of choice song. And then she finished and she was puffing, she was hot. And I just thought, you have gone too far. And so I just quietly put my clothes on and my ass is on fire. And I put my clothes back on and she was waiting to see what I was going to do. The major turning point of my life was the power that you can claim as yours. It's like, it's not just what you say in this world and it's not just how you say it. Um, It's what you don't say and how you don't say something. And I learned so much about power and empowerment that day, I turned around and bent right over my mother, which I had never ever dare have done in my life. And I used my, my force and my height and my anger and my resentment and my everything I'd ever experienced. And I bent right over her and I put my hand on my hip and I just looked right down at her into her eyes, into those black pools that once terrified me, and I just went, "Half you finished? You know, like so deliberately with the words, and I was shaking, of course, because I could not believe that I was saying that to her. And she looked at me, and she saw the light go out on me, that she lost me that day and she never, ever, ever, ever got me back. She looked at me and she said, I have, for now. And it was two weeks later, I left home in school with those two years high school education in my belt and the 20 bucks in my pocket and the clothes on my back and I left home.
3: be there when I die, won't you? You'll be
2: there when I die. Scene 8. Amanda is now 16 and she hasn't returned home, although she has tracked down her grandmother, her father's mother, and she becomes an important figure in Amanda's life. But still, Amanda hasn't gone back to school. Instead, she's on a sex, drugs, and rock and roll bender.
0: I was like the poked and prodded tiger, finally let out of the cage, and no one can tell me what to do. I just was smashing it. I wasn't gonna go back to school. You know, fuck that. You know, who was going to tell me what to do, and why go back to school? I was already earning 90 bucks a week. And I started stealing a lot of money. I'd start stealing it from employers. Um, I'd sleep with guys and go through their wallets. So I, I do not care how I got it, as long as I got it. Still was holding jobs. You know, a couple of times I was sort of let go, but I know it's because they knew I was stealing. I just didn't care, I just moved from job to job. I was constantly putting myself in these mega dangerous situations. Like, one of my friends was like, oh, a friend of mine's got a cousin and all we have to do is give a blowjob and we can get some drugs. And I was like, sweet, how, many, how much drugs can we get? So oh, I don't know, but I suppose the better we are, the more we'll get. And I was like, okay, sweet, let's go. So we went to Ōtara with our mini skirts, our hair teased to Terrified, lip liner on the outside of our lips, those tassel boots, you know, the FME boots, and um, like low tops, and we're like, right, okay, let's go. And sure enough, there's the guys, there's the drugs, they get us to hurt, and the, jo- the joints are laced. And all of a sudden, I'm not Amanda anymore, I'm like this creature, and I think that I'm ET, and I want to go home, and all of a sudden, there weren't just one or two guys, there were a whole bunch of them. They were all waiting for their payment. And I was like, holy crap. So I go into the bathroom, drag my friend along, and we both climb out the window, and we quickly run off. So we hitch, and we get picked up by these two guys in old tata, in mini skirts, and bad boots, and too much makeup, and we're off our jobs. And so we're driving along, and I say, oh, you can stop now. And they go, nah. And I say, oh, you can stop now, nah. Several times this went on, and all of a sudden I thought, How am I going to get out of this? My grandmother always said to me, if you're in a dangerous situation, two things, make them decide that you're not worth it. The second one, she used to say, try and have a poo, because they're not going to want to have sex with the girl that has a poo. So of course I'm sitting there going, trying to, and like nothing's coming out, and going, oh. So I think, okay, well that's not working. Having a poo is not going to work because I don't want to have one. So what do I do now? So I get my long legs and I smash the driver up against the steering wheel. He starts freaking out, the guy next to me starts freaking out, and I turn into Linda Blair from The Exorcist. With like twisting head and lulling tongues and. just being so crazy that they decide that I'm not worth it and in the meantime my friends going oh Amanda don't you're embarrassing me I was like why like why are you embarrassed like you don't even know what's gonna happen to us like who cares about how embarrassing this is anyway they pull over my friend and I get out of the car um, and then we ring this woman that we're staying with and get her to come and pick us up
2: Scene nine. It's just before Amanda's 17th birthday.
0: My grandmother was very pleased with herself and she came out with a with the present. And it was an envelope and I was so excited because it was fat and I was so sure it was full of cash. And I was like, yo And I just kind of ripped it open and there was this kind of congratulations that I saw. This great big congratulations in bold and I honestly was like... I don't know any denomination with congratulations on it. So I unravel it, and it's like, you are enrolled you know, at the Doreen Morrison modelling course. And I'm like, what is this, you know? And Grandma goes, oh, it'll be really good for you. And I'm like, yes, but so are Brussels sprouts, Grandma, and I don't like them either. It was a 10-week modelling course. And I kind of turned up with a whole bunch of attitude, ready to kind of, you know, strip those girls to pieces and make them feel bad about themselves and all that kind of stuff. And when I got there, I actually started having fun. And it was actually really cool because the people were really encouraging about you being great, and that you could end up being a model. And I was like, what? This is amazing, whatever, it will never happen to me. And then finally I get this you know—this call to go on an audition. I just needed to turn up and I needed to wear nice laundry. And then I found out I got the job. It was a $5,000 TV commercial. And it was my 17th birthday that I did that job, you know, and I got my hair and makeup done for me and the photographer was really, um, he was a tough photographer but I really liked him because he was just straight up and honest and so I knew exactly what he meant. Like he'd go, move. And i go, like how? And he goes, I don't know, you're the model, move. And I'd go, yeah but I haven't finished my modelling course yet. And he goes, well just dance around. You know, and and I'd just like be going, okay, well, whatever you want. I was so used to doing what people told me to do, in that sense, that I did what I was told. And I just gave everything that I've got. And for me, I was like, how can I possibly be worth $5,000? How can I be worth that? Like, that can't be real. And so I thought that was just a fluke, and that was good luck. And then I got another TV commercial. And I thought, you know what, this is not just a fluke maybe I should be a model because this is pretty good going by my count. So I decided that I wasn't the tallest, skinniest or prettiest but that I would be the best that I could be, that I would never complain, that I would be grateful for everything, that I would help you know hang up the clothes and pick up the clothes and you know that nothing would be too much trouble for me. They actually thought I was really cool you know they thought I was really nice and for me I had this opportunity to create a new persona all they saw me as was this amazing girl with so much spirit and spunk and she's intense and crazy but she's lovely and she smiles and she's friendly and she's honest you know it was incredible you know and so all of a sudden i was not this dark negative person i was somebody that was really happy and positive and fun to be around and people saw me as kind and you know they saw me as everything that I wanted to be.
2: Scene 10. It's 1997. Amanda is 29 and she's left her old life of drugs, theft and what she calls opportunity prostitution in the dust. The new Amanda is almost unrecognisable. She's studied business, become a successful model, married and is expecting her first child.
0: On the 6th of November, I give birth to this amazing, amazing boy. I thought I knew every part of myself, my good, my bad, my indifferent, my ugly, you know, my euphoric, my revolting, the whole lot. And when I had Isaac, it was like a light going on and also a light going off at the same time.
2: Amanda realises she has to deal with the pain of her childhood once and for all before it impacts on her son.
0: It became like, this has to stop and I could not infect this child who had no choice with my stuff and my terror and fear and hatred and resentment and anger my list of what was important to me of course went asked about face all of a sudden money plummeted to the bottom of the list the top was breaking the cycle values became really important respect and connection went right up the top of the list and communication became important. And I was 29, just about turned 30, when I realised that actually my ex-husband and I weren't going to make it. She
2: eventually leaves her marriage and she uses her share of the settlement to pay for six years of therapy, so she won't repeat her mother's patterns of abuse. Scene 11. A year or so after leaving her marriage, Amanda has taken a giant step up the corporate ladder by becoming a modelling agent. The traumatised girl who was beaten and abused, who stole and swapped sex for food and drugs, she's long gone.
0: The modelling industry is such a, a, a glamorous industry, and, and not just as a model, but as an agent as well. You know, And it, it buys you privileges, it buys you access, it opens doors. For example, um, a friend of mine who I really, really believed in as a model, she was getting married in Mexico and she was, I'm paying for everything. That's my gift to you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. Um, I'm taking you to Mexico. And then we're in Mexico and we're in this place that's 5,000 US a night. And somebody goes, Go and see who's in the entranceway. And I'm like, Who? I said, Go and have a look. And I go, Oh, okay. So I go out there, and this massive entranceway is this big six foot four dark guy. And he goes, Hello, where's the party? In this English accent, I'm like, In my pants. I have to go get my camera. It's Seal. We kept on seeing her while we were there and it started becoming normal that we were hanging out with Seal.
2: Then, Amanda takes the ultimate step. Together with a former colleague, she starts her own modelling and talent agency from scratch. They call it Red 11.
0: The successes were phenomenal and the travelling around the world and the perks and the fashion weeks. So much fun. And of course, the better you become, the more people will join you.
2: Scene 12. It's late twenty thirteen and eight and a half years have passed since she started Red Eleven.
0: So for me we're building, 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 but I was getting stretched and stretched and stretched. What I was finding is that I was helping a lot of beauty privileged people become more privileged. Like I'd get people bawling their eyes out because they had to cut their hair. And I was like, oh my gosh, first world problems. And that started happening a lot more. I'd say to a model, hey look, you know, I've only got you $750 for the day. And I know it's a really big day, but it's going to be so worth it for you. And all I'd hear is this bitching on the other end of the phone. Like the truth is, you know, one of the things that made me a good model is how grateful I was. I was grateful for opportunities. I was grateful for simple things. And I was seeing more and more of a lack of gratitude. And I thought, well actually... I want to help kids like me. I want to help kids that went through stuff like me with real problems. You know, where do they go? How do they learn? How do they get the support? And that started creeping up a lot more. I made a decision to leave. To be honest, you know, I got called a lot of names. You know, I got called crazy. And I thought, okay, well, I'm crazy then. It ended up being the day that Nelson Mandela died 2013. I walked out that day, and never to return. And it was hard.
2: Scene 13. Amanda forms a charitable trust called Bridge the Gap Project. Her aim is to help kids like she once was to build confidence and people skills and actually get somewhere in life.
0: I just thought it's actually time to be a voice for where it counts. And to me, where it counts, is our vulnerable and at-risk young people.
2: Some of the things she learned on that modelling course all those years ago, starting with stuff as basic as how to shake hands and look people in the eye, built her confidence and gave her a leg up into the working world. And if it worked for her, she figures, it will work for these kids too, and they too will have a better chance of making it in the world. She tries it and of course it does work and then after a while she realises she has something else that could help her to inspire even more young people.
0: I was speaking at L'Oreal Face Your Future.
2: That's a yearly event for 16 to 18 year olds in foster care.
0: I'd just speak from the heart, just shoot straight from the hip, tell my story and then I started realising that actually telling and sharing my story was inspiring all these young people to wanting to make change within themselves.
2: Scene 14. It's late 2015. Amanda is in a room at the Women's Prison at Wiri, South Auckland, where she's hoping to inspire the hardest audience out, and she knows it will be her biggest test yet. She's kicking off a 10-week programme for young prisoners called Freedom From Within, and she hopes that for some of them, the course will be a catalyst for change.
0: It could have been me that ended up in prison. I did stupid things, and things I'm not proud of. The amount of times I actually drunk and drove. I stole from lots of people on a regular basis, and of course lots of drugs. I don't feel very much at all, but there's that little part of me that was kind of like, now I'm tough, but am I actually as tough as I need to be to do this job? What if they just thought I was a dick? Like, you know, who am I? Is my story strong enough? Is it compelling enough? It was such an overwhelming experience. I'm quite nervous and then the first door opens and you can see these girls starting to come in and looking me up and down straight away you know that they're judging they're doing everything that we're trying to encourage them not to do you know they're asking us not to judge them and yet the first thing they do is judge right and so I know they're judging me and I'm trying to like read them you know as they're coming in one at a time and I'm looking at them and I'm really trying not to but I'm thinking what have you done? You know, what have you done? What's your story? Because if I know what their story is, then I know I can help them. And I decide to greet them, you know, and just you know, open up my arms and go, Kia I'm Amanda, and shake their hand and then, and then give them a hug. Scene
2: 15, the final scene. It's the same moment in time as the previous scene. But this one isn't told from Amanda's perspective. Instead, it's from the point of view of a 20-year-old inmate who was one of the young women filing into the room.
3: You can hear her before you see her. You really can. And um, I could hear her, you know, and she just sounded like a real, like, out-there lady. That's what I got from just hearing her voice. And then when the doors did open, you know, I just see this, this lady with her hair slicked back and we noticed her federation clothes. she's like hi I'm Amanda Betts and you know nice to meet you and come in and, and I'm just looking at her like who the fuck are you just didn't want to get too involved with the lady and she looks like she's hoity toitsy, you know she's a rich bitch she ain't she don't understand what we're going through you know we're fucking young stuck up in jail And who are you to come up here thinking you can tell us you know tell us about your bullshit So she sits us down and um, she's just introducing herself, and then we all introduced ourselves, and it was you know we were just we were just too cool to talk and shit. So, and then she broke down her story, and the thing that made me hurt was how she said she lost her dad, and like just to know that someone can relate to me, I lost my dad, you lost your dad, you know, and and I felt like she could understand me, and I just. I tied it in a little bow and just stuck that in my pocket.
1: When was the moment that you sat down? What did you seek that was not found? And was it buried so deep that you lost everything?
2: Amanda's course at the prison went the distance, and since then she's gone on to work with and find opportunities for dozens of underprivileged young people who, like her, have had huge mountains to climb. You can check her out at bridgethegapproject.co.nz, and if you get the chance while you're there, check out the link to the Heart Speak Collective, which is one of the very creative ways through which Amanda raises funds to keep Bridge the Gap going. It involves pieces of clothing that have been individually customised by talented craftspeople, including Amanda, in a way that kind of defies description. All I can say is, I'd rather have a heart-speak piece of clothing in my wardrobe than pretty much anything else. It's well worth a look. You can find the link to Bridge the Gap on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. And of course, you've been listening to The Lib, a podcast of extraordinary true stories. You can also find all the other episodes of The Lip on thelippodcast.kiwi and also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and wherever else you download your podcasts. You can also find us on the Current Affairs and Culture website noted.co.nz. If you want to share the love, please feel free to visit us on our Facebook page and maybe give it a like or leave a review or share one of our episodes with a friend. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. See you next month.
1: When was the moment that you sat down? And did your closest kin leave you full of doubt? Did they cut you down and did they shut you out? When was the moment that you sat down? Tell me the moment when you sat down Were your bridges tall before they burned to the ground And was your fire fierce and did it lick and consume Till it came to this When was the moment that you sat down Hear the rustle of a thousand wings When was the moment that you sat down? Child come home Child come home Child come home Child come home